Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. Before we dive into today's message, we would like to share a unique opportunity with you. On Saturday, April 2nd, we will be hosting our second annual Quest 5K Run and 1K Family Walk to meet the needs in our own backyard. This year, all proceeds will benefit Westerville Area Resource Ministry and Big Brothers Big Sisters of Central Ohio. Registration for runners, walkers, donors, and sponsors are open now at gotoquest.org slash 5K. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org slash 5K. Now, let's dive into today's message. And it's actually reflected in our in our branding here for the series. Be confidently prepared to share the hope filled reason why you follow Jesus, why you believe, why you think, why you act differently because of the way you follow Jesus and be able to do it in a gentle and respectful way. And that's the theme about what we're about. And today you asked us to talk about homosexuality. So we're going to tackle that hard topic. It's a really hard one, isn't it? in your conversations to have a gentle, respectful conversation when you disagree with people on it because of the emotions involved, because of the intensity of the views, because of the minefield-like divides in perspectives that go on. In fact, I have to tell you that in writing this message this week, there were multiple times where I went, wow, that, that's a landmine that, that some people might not be real happy with. And then a couple sentences later, I kind of went, wow, that's another landmine, except now the people who are happy with the last landmine won't be happy with this one. And I started to go, why don't I just find another job and let Jeremy deal with this one? <laughs> but then I remembered who we are at Quest. I remembered who we are at Quest and who God has made us to be and who God is making us to be. That if we really get who Jesus is, that if we get the winsome way he came to us when we disagreed with him, when we weren't even interested in pursuing him and showed us grace and showed us kindness and came to befriend us and sticks with us, that if we get that about Jesus, then even if we don't walk out of here today all on the same page with us, that's not my goal today. My goal is to, to have a really honest conversation today. So if we don't even walk out of here today all on the same page, that we can still be unified together in love and following Jesus, even while disagreeing, even while continuing our pursuit of what really is truth and how do we live in the best that God has for us. You see, the church has all too often sinned in how it's treated the, treated the people who have been homosexual or that community and it's caused difficulties but before i get there let me go let me do this let's uh let's talk about the questions that we have uh that you guys submitted you guys submitted questions like this you said why is being gay a sin another one how do i act with my sister who is gay and goes to a church that believes in god but not in jesus Another person said this. They said, the Bible clearly says homosexuals and adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is that true? That doesn't seem very forgiving. Will they not go to heaven? Another person asked the question, why did God make people with homosexual tendencies if he then condemns them to hell? And after we had submitted the questions a couple of weeks ago, somebody else messaged me because, you know, I only, we only let you have 200 characters and this is not 200 characters, but it's really good. And I asked permission to share it with you. They said, this beloved Quest friend said this. She says, I do not look at being gay as a problem or something that can be prayed away simply as part of who they are. I share my faith with all my friends, gay, straight, married, single, etc., and I invite them all to church and to have a relationship with God. 
And thank you for doing that. Our quest friend continues. She says, I have gotten so upset when I hear some church's stances on the LGBTQ community that it has almost made me turn my back on religion and church. And I get that. I mean, the church has indeed uh, not treated the homosexual community very nicely a lot of times, and we have sinned against them. If you remember the message we dealt with in 2013 on this, I spent quite a bit of time in that message apologizing on behalf of the church for the way we have treated the gay community as a church. Our quest friend goes on and says this. She says, I I get caught up in the emotions of my God wouldn't turn his back on lovely, wonderful, amazing people because of who they love. I can't help but think of all of the many sins that people commit every day that often happen in the church. Affairs, engaging in sex out of wedlock, overindulgence, pornography, lying, etc. Obviously, the church doesn't support these actions, but they allow these sinners in the doors and they let them know that by asking for forgiveness, they will find forgiveness. But what about the LGBTQ community? In my opinion... They can't ask forgiveness for something that just resides in them, just as I can't ask for forgiveness for wanting to be married to a wonderful man and having blue eyes. I was born with both, just as they were. I know that many churches have different interpretations of this, and then they go on to ask me, would we deal with both views, those who are churched and support homosexuality and those who believe it is a sin? Then our quest friend concludes this way, and she says, I know several quest members who have gay family, are gay themselves, or have close friends who are gay. Makes for a very emotional topic, she says. And I think she understates that tremendously, doesn't she? I mean, if we look at the, look at the, this issue, it is a very, very personal issue. It's people who are family and friends of ours, who we love who have loved us deeply and we care about them and we hope the best for them. And and it's people who are witty and kind and generous and giving and loving and involved in serving others and bringing much good to our communities and they're also gay. For me, this is also a very, very personal topic. I have a very close family member who is gay. And Wendy and I both have had the privilege of having many very good friends who have been gay in the past. And years ago when I was doing more professional counseling, I, I counseled extensively people who were gay and had not only the privilege of knowing them as friends, but of hearing in probably more intimate personal details their life and their story and their identity and all that went along with that in such personal terms. And my kids have friends who are gay who come over to our house and they go to their house regularly. This is a very personal issue for me and for you. And I would dare say that unless you have had the privilege and had the time to be in a level, a certain level of friendship and openness with people who are gay, it will be very hard for you to have the level of compassion to engage in that conversation in a gentle and respectful way because you won't quite understand them and that relationship won't be there. This is also a very huge topic. It's much too big to deal with today. We're going to barely be able to scratch the surface of a lot of the questions. I mean, the last time we dealt with this in the fall of 2013, I had four, if you remember, really long messages to establish the foundation to even start to tackle with the, tackle this question and this issue. At that time, I wrestled with what our quest friend asked me to do today, which was to honestly present both views, those who interpret Scripture from a supportive of gay perspective and those who look at Scripture and believe it is a sin. And we dealt very honestly with all of those views on both sides of that question. Of that question. The leadership of quest 
here, myself, we believe that the Bible is reliable, that it can lead us in this question really, really well. Now, some of you actually asked that question as well as part of your questions for this series. Some of you said, I, I don't know if I can trust the Bible. I don't know if it's reliable. And I get that. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff out there that, that makes us suspect the Bible's reliability and not be convinced of it. So we're going to probably deal with that question in more detail in the summer. But let me today just give you one simple, rational reason why we should be able to trust the Bible. Because it's hard for me to believe that the God who created the universe, who created all the galaxies, who made them all spin and have all the right magnetic charges just perfectly so that Earth continues to stay in its life-sustaining orbit, it's, it's hard for me to understand that the God who can create all that and all the way down to the little molecules and all the electrons that you're sitting on today on your chair because you realize your chairs are actually moving, right? There's electrons and, and molecules and atoms there and they're moving. It's hard for me to believe that the God who can create life in the human body and, and, and it be so amazingly perfectly balanced for health. It's hard for me to imagine that a God who can do that cannot also reliably communicate to people the scriptures that he wants us to understand and reliably preserve them so that we can understand them and have a good, reliable guide to live by. I just have, that just doesn't make any sense to me that you could, a God like that couldn't create reliable scriptures for us. So that's, that's, that, that's that. And, and God can do that, and he can accurately communicate it, even through fallible people. So when I struggle with Scripture and I face things, whether it's this topic or other topics that I, I just I, I struggle with, and I go, I don't know, this just feels tough, it's difficult, it's challenging, I don't know what to think about it, I, where it would be more, especially on topics where it would be more convenient for me from a relationship standpoint, to believe differently than the Scripture because it would relieve a lot of tension. Whenever I face those things with personal angst, I come to the conclusion that my wisdom is not as good as God's. And I need to walk out following God's to figure out why there's truth in this. So after a lot of study where I studied a lot of the gay, gay, pro-gay theologians and their approach to the biblical text, and I spent a lot of time studying the text myself, and I looked at respected biblical and historical scholars, I, I just, I got to honestly say I couldn't come down to any other conclusion than that homosexuality in the Bible is clearly a sin, and it's not God's best or his design. Now, for an examination of both those sides of the equation, I, I encourage you to go to the website and, and go back to that series in the fall of 2013 and at least listen to the November 3rd message on that. But I really would recommend you listen to at least those three f- before that as well. And I also would recommend the article by Tim Keller, The Bible and Same-Sex Relationships. He does a really good, really fair job of discussing both sides of the equation of, of the views t- uh, of, of the Bible and, and does a really fair job of, of representing that. So if you want some more information on that side uh, of the discussion today, I'd I'd encourage you to do that. But instead today, instead of doing both sides of the equation, I want to spend some time today talking about how we can find common ground in our relationships with people with whom we may disagree. Whatever side of the equation you stand on today, I want to talk about finding common ground and how we can build respect and kind relationship and open discussion and let me do this by starting by, by starting by summarizing the questions you raised into a different way. And, and this is kind of a summary of all the questions you made. If God made me this way, then it seems like God intends for my orientation for love to be fulfilled. 
So what could be wrong with a loving, monogamous, faithful, homosexual relationship, right? Or another way to summarize the questions is, if God is love, how can love, regardless of orientation, be sin? Another way to summarize it might be, why would God make me this way and then condemn me to hell for the way he'd made me? These are really tough questions, aren't they? And as we talked about earlier in this series, almost all of our questions about God, whether it's this or others, include the sense of moral accusation of God. And and, and frankly, these questions have very reasonable moral questions of God in it, right? So let's, let's think about it this way. What are the assumptions in these questions and these statements? So... Uh, the assumptions. I mean, one of them I think uh, that's very good is that we assume that God is love. I mean, most people want to or do believe that God is love. And therefore, the moral accusations coming out come out of, of these questions saying, well, God is love, so you're trying to say he's not. And if he's not, then I can't trust this. I mean, you get that. A lot, a lot, a lot of these questions have that accusation in there. But we do have that common identity. Most people believe God is love or want to believe God is love. So here's another um, another assumption. If I have these drives for love from earliest of memory or from genetics, then God created me this way, right? Another assumption of these questions is, <coughs> pardon me, this orientation, the drives for liking, loving, and sex reflect who I am, my identity, Right? And out of that comes the kind of the assumption as well, not written up there, but it's the assumption that it's, that it's wrong of Christians or God to ask me to change my identity. Another assumption that's kind of behind these questions is if I have these drives for love, they're meant to be fulfilled. And out of that, we often think if they're not fulfilled, then I'm denying a part of who I am and not really being me, right? Are these fair assumptions for what the questions are actually getting at? And attached to that last assumption, regardless of sexual orientation, our culture kind of has an assumption that drives that question, saying sex and fulfillment in romantic relationships is a God-given right. And what we don't say overtly, but what many singles have heard from that and experienced from that is that, therefore, singleness and abstinence is somehow second-rate. And a final assumption that's often made coming out of these questions is this. If God made me this way and God is love, then the Bible must not be reliable on this subject. Right? Is that fair? Do those, do you think that, I mean, we could wordsmith this all day, but is that a fair way to represent the assumptions behind these questions? Okay. So. I have a question for you to ponder in a moment, but first let me dispose of of something I hope that you never say to someone who identifies as homosexual. There's this old statement in the church world that goes like this, God loves the sinner but hates the sin, and therefore I am to love the sinner and hate the sin. And personally, I would prefer that that statement go away forever, regardless of the topic, that we never say that again. So let's just imagine that's that's off the books. Because when, when you say that to a person who's, who's homosexual, homosexuality is not something they do. It's something they are. And that statement comes across as a direct attack on their person, as hateful and as ignorant. No matter what you mean by it, that's how it comes across. But let's go back to the assumptions. Are the assumptions we listed that are behind these core questions true to reality? 
Okay, let's challenge these assumptions. Is it true that if I have an orientation, and especially if it's, there's a genetic or biological factor in it in my orientation, is it true that God created me that way? Is it true that if I have a certain orientation, certain drives for love, that it's only right and, and it is my right to express those drives? Is it true that not expressing those drives equates to denying a part of who I am or my identity? Is it true that if I choose to not express them, that I deny myself the full love life God designed me to have and instead force myself to live a second-rate life? You see, it's around these assumptions and, and, and challenging these assumptions that, that the greatest offense and the greatest relational divide comes when we try to have conversations about that. Because if you are heterosexual and you're able to fulfill your sexual desires in a loving marriage, then why is it not fair for a homosexual person to fulfill their sexual desires in a marriage? I mean, to the homosexual, this is patently unfair of God or Christians to ask one person to change their identity while the other get to express their identity and and, and this gift of sex without having to change who they are, right? It makes us, it makes homosexuals feel different and unrelatable. It isolates homosexuality as something that is uniquely judged something to which a unique demand is being made that no one else has to face, changing your identity at a core level. But the question is, is it a true understanding of identity to equate the drives of love and attraction with who we are? I mean, from a fairly rational viewpoint, if drives have possible genetic ties and and they're truly part of our identity and they should be then expressed as asserted by the homosexual or pro-homosexual people, then it is also true, it must also be true that there are other genetic and biologically predisposed drives and and orientations and dispositions, right? And and, And we know there are, aren't there? We know God has created us with predispositions and orientations, right? I mean, all you have to do is if you've been in a family, with, especially with multiple kids in it, just look at everybody from the moment they're born. I mean, Derek, my oldest, from the moment he was born, he was this inquisitive, competitive, introverted thinker, perfectionist, who would every now and then burst out of his introvertedness into this crazy fun and risk, and then he'd go back into his introvert state, right? I remember walking, coming home from a business trip one time, and Walking into the kitchen, my daughter, Elise, at two years old, is standing in the kitchen, and she's got her little sticky note pad, and she's scribbling lines on it. <clears throat> and I ask Elise, what are you doing? And she goes, Daddy, I'm making a list of what I need to get done today, with a big smile on her face. And she was writing really messy, just like her dad. You know, I mean, it's just, just like me. And, and from the very first ounce of her life, she was always structured and ordered and organized in that way. Jared is this very, very outgoing, very physically rambunctious, physical kid, and that's the reason I had to stop wrestling with him at an earlier age than the rest of him, because he hurt me. God certainly creates orientations and dispositions. But does that mean they are to be expressed? Or are some of them, or even many of them, intended to be restrained or redirected or not expressed at all? I mean, each of us have natural drives of personality that aren't appropriately part of our identity, isn't it, right? And they should be restrained and redirected. 
Some of us are built more naturally, driven to be aggressive like Jared, and, and, and we need to restrain ourselves, whether it's physical or whether it's verbal aggression and bluntness. We need to restrain ourselves because we hurt people, right? Some of us are more prone to needing lots of affirmation, and if we express that and let it control our identity, it leads to all sorts of problems, doesn't it? It leads to lying because we're so people-pleasing that we tell people what they want to hear, even if it's contradictory. It leads to anger because our tank of affirmation isn't full enough. It's empty, or it leads to competitiveness and, and hurtful competitiveness because we need to feel better, bigger, faster, smarter than everybody around us in order to feel good about ourselves. Our drives certainly influence our identity, but are they our identity? See, most men have drives for sex, and that drive can be aroused by many pretty women walking by throughout their life, right? We know that. Did God create that sexual orientation and intend it to be fulfilled with whoever arouses them? Is that part of a healthy identity? Many women have a strong drive for emotional intimacy and, and, and some fulfill that through things like soap operas or the bachelor shows or romance novels. Does that make that a healthy part of our identity? No. You see, there are lots of drives we have that do not, cannot, and should not define our identity. Lots of drives around love and sex and work and life and relationships, right? Just because we have always had a drive or an orientation does not mean that is our identity and that it should be fulfilled. And the Bible clearly teaches in lots of areas of life. It calls us to restraint and learned redirection and self-control. But let's examine the assumptions even a little more deeply. First, let me say this. I have little doubt that there are biological factors that predispose people to being homosexual. In fact, I would not be at all surprised if in the very near future they make a genetic link to people being homosexual in their orientation. Now, there's a few of you of, of the traditional view of things that would, would want to call me a heretic right now. So just hang with me for a second. I want you to honestly wrestle with a question. If there is a biological or genetical fa- genetic factor, does that mean... God created that person homosexual. What does the Bible say about that topic? I mean, the Bible is actually really, really, really clear on this topic, and, and the answer is no, and for two reasons. You look at Genesis 1 through 3 for one, for the first reason, and throughout that whole time, it, it, and throughout the whole Bible, it teaches that God created man and woman, and that the two created differently, created in a complementary fashion, complete each other physically, emotionally, motivation-wise. See, the simplest answer to why is homosexuality a sin is that it violates the sacred purpose that God created sex and men and women for. See, all throughout the Bible, race, gender, and sex are all sacred in God's plan. And sex between a man and a woman in marriage is actually taught in the Bible as being one of the closest experiences being created in the image of God to the same experience of God's oneness in the Godhead in the Trinity. Sex is created wonderfully between man and woman as God's good order. But, but that only, you know, that only deals with part of it because that really uh, focuses on what some people would still say is a narrow view of how God created. It doesn't directly address the question, do biological and genetic factors that may predispose someone to being homosexual mean God created that person homosexual? 
Genesis 3 actually addresses that pretty clearly and throughout the Bible when it discusses the idea of the fall of humanity into sin. The effects of sin, it said, the Bible teaches, caused the process of death and disintegration to set in. It caused corruption and brokenness. Things don't work like they used to. In genetics, it teaches, the Bible teaches, it caused problems in genetics. It caused problems in emotional makeup. It causes problems in motivations and drives. It causes brokenness in relationships. It, it causes brokenness even in the very cosmos, in the earth, in the weather patterns, and all of it. The fall, the Bible teaches, crushed everything, including everyone's sexual orientation to a certain degree. Whether heterosexuals who are aroused by people of the opposite sex to whom they're not married, it crushed that, or whether it's, or whether it's in a marriage and there's a lack of arousal to their mate, or whether it's a homosexual disposition, or whether it's a weakness of personality drives, or whether it's the drives of someone bipolar, or the genetic predisposition of someone to be, to have cancer, or the cosmological brokenness of earthquakes and storms. Sin put brokenness and corruption, things misdirected into all of creation. Sin is the cause of all brokenness. God didn't create us that way. Having an orientation cannot necessarily be equated with God creating me this way, especially when God says that orientation isn't how he intended for us to be. It goes counter to the very core understanding of the Bible and the effects of sin and the effects of the fall and humanity and the world in that regard. See, the statement, I have always been this way, therefore God must have created me this way, not only biblically, but even logically, it breaks the rules of logic. It, it puts two or more things together that don't belong in one question. You have to break out the issues and deal with them one at a time. And that's kind of what we've done here. What did God create us to be is the first question we have to deal with. And then we deal with what does God say about the origin of drives within us? Are all drives created by him? And then when we answer that question, we have to say, what does God say about biological influences on our life, motivations and behaviors? See, only when we separate out those questions and deal with those questions first and deal with them biblically can we even reasonably begin to deal with the question of, so what about the drives that make up homosexual orientation? See, our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our drives don't work like they were created to work. They're not what God originally created us to be in purity, in love, and in wholeness. Our emotional life isn't what it was created to be. The disasters in the earth were not what God created to be. Lots of things have been misdirected from God's originally intended good. And that's the definition of sin and the effects of sin in the world. And see, these are also all things that God himself, Jesus and, and other places in the Bible tells us are still going to happen until he returns. We will be tempted by our desires and drives to do things that are not according to his created plan, like slander, like greed, like anger expressed inappropriately, like temptation to express our sexuality against his good and best created order, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual, it doesn't matter. And Jesus promises to us as well that he is restoring the world, reforming the world, and restoring us, each of us, back to his originally intended good. And see what that does? It means we all identify with each other. 
I don't care if you are homosexual or you're heterosexual or bi or trans or aren't sure and still questioning, which is actually what the Q in the LGBTQ stands for most currently in our culture. We all have drives that we allow to define us that are not God's best, that they're sin. And God asks us to submit our identity to him. And he forgives us. And he takes us right where we are. Even before we have the strength or the ability or are even convinced that we need to or can change in some areas. And he loves us right where we're at. And he asks us to follow him and learn to be more aligned to him each and every day, step by step. And he tells us he knows it's not going to be easy. He doesn't pull the wool over and say, oh, it's going to all be nice and easy. He says, no, it's going to be easy. He warns us it's going to be a spiritual battle for all of us for a lifetime. You see, there's no difference between homosexual and heterosexual that should prevent us from loving one another and being in the struggle of life and following Jesus together. Jesus doesn't ask one thing of one person and another of another. I mean, certainly we can all look at life in many respects, And look at people who we say their struggle is much harder than ours. We get that. But we are all in the same boat. Now, the big sin for church people in America, especially in regard to homosexuality, has been that we've treated homosexuality different as someone... Uh, differently than someone predisposed to other sins. We, we, we look at our own sin or we're blind to our own sin or we, or we need to look at other people's sin to feel better about ourselves rather than really looking at ourselves and owning the depth of our own sin because we all let drives and orientations and beliefs define our identity that are contrary to God's good created order, right? And part of that sin for the church, I think, has been amplified because I don't know why this has been more to the homosexual community than others, but to the homosexual community it has all too often been communicated that if you just choose to follow Jesus and you get saved by him, that you will lose those drives and feelings and that you should, they should go away. You know what? I know some people who have lost those drives after they came to Christ and they don't struggle with it anymore. I know many who haven't. Just like I know a lot of people who have been healed miraculously through prayer from cancer, and I know some who haven't. I know some who have been healed miraculously through from biological depression and some who haven't. I, I know that there's been so many people who have had people-pleasing insecurity issues and, 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 and some of them have grown past it and some have never grown past that and the problems it causes in their life. And I, I know people who have been faced the drives of pornography and, and been delivered from that and not struggle with it. And I know a lot of people who still struggle with it for an entire lifetime. I know people who have been identified as worriers and, and they continue anxiety. And I know others who have grown past that when they, fo- when they became a follower of Christ or, or as they grew in Christ. I know homosexuals who have changed and they're happily married and they have little temptation toward homosexuality anymore. And I know ho- homosexual people who are happily married and they still, t- t- uh, and they still struggle. I know some who have decided to put the lifestyle away and, and they've never married and they still struggle. I know some who have chosen to be single and don't have much temptation, but they're still not attracted to the opposite sex. I mean, it's all over the map. We've made these promises that Jesus is going to take our struggle away, but he doesn't all the time, and we don't always let him all the time either, regardless of what the issue is. Now, 
what's been wrong and made this conversation difficult between people who are supportive of gay as a lifestyle or believe it is okay in the Bible and talking to other Christians as they say, God made me this way and this is who I am and this is my identity. And they believe that Christianity, Jesus, God, it's unfair for isolating them and deny, and asking them to deny who they are because God doesn't ask others to do the same thing. But, but the reality is God asks all of us the exact same question to change at the core of our identity. He asks us to surrender that to him. Let me show you this in the scriptures even. There's one scripture that's actually viewed as one of the harshest towards homosexuality in the Bible. And it's, uh, let's read it and we'll talk about it. Verse, 1 Corinthians 6, it says this. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, those who try to assert that all homosexuals are going to hell try to use this verse to make it say that. And that's not exactly what this verse is saying. To explain that, let me actually repeat a little bit of one of the points that I made in the 2013 message about biblical interpretation. Pro-gay theologians look at this passage and they say about this verse, because homosexual in the Greek in this is, in the original Greek is actually a noun and not a verb, that it's talking about a very specific kind of homosexuality, like the pederasty that was common, which is sex slavery of little boys, or the temple male prostitution that was going on in Corinth at the time to where the letter was written. And because it's a noun and it doesn't refer to homosexual acts as a verb, it cannot be used to refer to homosexuality in general, is the argument, right? And they strengthen that, that, that case by saying that homosexuality in Paul's day outside of these slave and temple things was actually a completely unknown concept. Now, that latter point has actually been categorically proven to not be true by a full spectrum of scholars from conservative to liberal to to uh, to Christian to secular and even a number of the more respected pro-gay theologians would say that you just can't make that assertion. It just doesn't hold water historically. Homosexuality during Paul's day as a general practice outside of those temple and preterasty practices was a very common known practice. So let's get back to the noun form of it. So even in the noun form of it, linguistic and historical evidence doesn't support that this noun is narrowing the definition of what Paul is talking about here. In fact, even many of the respected pro-gay theologians would say that that's true. You can't make that argument because making that argument, they would say, is a lot like saying that the word groovy in the 1960s was only used to refer to rock stars at a concert. Right? I mean, that's what the argument is actually being made. And isn't groovy a great word? We should bring it back. I'd really like to be a groovy pastor, but, you know, I don't, I don't have what it takes, so Jeremy would have to be that. Um, but there is significance in the fact that Paul is using a noun form here. Because a noun is a label. This passage in in stating about judgment of people who are not entering the kingdom of God comes down to the issue of that label or that identity. It's not saying, and I'm going to use lots of double negatives, so just hang with me. It's not saying anyone who has a homosexual orientation or has even acted on it is going to hell. It's not saying homosexuals cannot be Christians. It's not saying that those who drink uh, and get drunk all too often are absolutely going to hell. It's not saying that, that those who slander cannot be forgiven. 
It's not saying that imperfect people repeatedly falling into sin too often as Christians are absolutely going to go to hell. I wish I had more time on this, but I need to move on. What Paul is getting at in the use of the adjectives and nouns for sins of this passage is the issue of the labels we live by, of the identification we take upon ourselves and our, of who we identify with and, and the identification of ourselves. And what, it's, what Paul is actually saying is those who refuse to allow themselves to completely identify with Jesus, which also means allowing Jesus to define them, to allow the one who created us to be the definer of our identity, that if we refuse to do that, that we are are in danger of not inheriting the kingdom of God. Why? Because those people are idolaters in the bigger sense of the word. I mean, this passage uses idolatry to refer to people allowing their local gods to, to be their identity. But in the broader sense of that word idolater, this is what Paul is confronting here. Meaning they insist on putting something other than God's definition of themselves above God. Whether it's their own desire to judge what's right and wrong instead of allowing God to have that, or whether it's the struggle that we have for power and wanting to put other people down through slander so we feel better about ourselves, or whether it's a definition of God's good created order like in sexual practices, whether heterosexual or homosexual doesn't make a difference. Making those things our identity more than God means Jesus is not truly that person's Lord and they will not inherit the kingdom of God, which means they won't experience God's fullness and best in this life or in the life to come. Paul is not isolating out those who struggle with homosexuality. He's not telling the church to isolate from homosexuals, nor is he isolating that sin or condemning that sin to to hell out of hand, nor is he saying someone who struggles with homosexual orientation cannot be a Christian and a vital part of a church. The bigger picture of what he's getting at is all of us have to face this regardless of our orientation and drives and whatever we feel that identifies who we are, every one of us has to face the idea that we are broken and we are blind in far too many areas to his good and best for us and that we need a Savior and a Lord. And we need to surrender our identity to Jesus, including surrendering our sex life to Jesus. And we need to find our supreme meaning and joy in following him. And if we don't, if we persistently resist letting him be the one who defines us, regardless of what that is in our identity, whether it's sex or something else, then we are in danger of hell. Not because of our sin, not because of our struggle or even our continued struggle to overcome this or our failures to overcome this in spite of trying to follow God, but because we refuse to fully identify with God and trust Him as the one who created us to know our true identity best and trust Him that He is able to restore us and promises to completely restore us. That's the reason God has Paul use nouns and adjectives from a wide variety of sins and drives in this passage. Now, for some who are heterosexual or homosexual, that may mean a life of singleness. And the bummer of that is our society communicates horrible messages about that. It it communicates that you can't be fully loved and fully fulfilled unless you find a person who loves you and have some sort of ecstatic, beautiful sex with them. And if you don't, 
then all you can expect is a second-class life is what our society communicates. But that's not biblical, and it's not a reality. Both Jesus and Paul talk about the fact that some choose singleness. Some are made for singleness, and some are made that way by humanity for whatever reason. And Paul actually, a chapter later in this, in Corinthians, elevates singleness to one of the highest callings that you could possibly have. You don't need to be married and you don't need to have all the experiences of that in order to experience God's created best for you. Now, one final statement before questions. If you have a homosexual orientation, heterosexuality is not the answer to your homosexuality. What is the answer is putting your identity in Christ, just like that same answer goes for all of us, because we are all in the same boat. Jeremy, come out, come on up. We're going to take some questions. We have some good questions. Thank you for submitting them. Uh, I'm going to start here with uh, this question that says. My friend says she attends a third-way church. And uh, what does that mean? Actually, is Quest a third-way church? Um, uh, and then I'm also going to address, there's a, a secondary question that I think uh, works with this one. It says, how do we interact with churches who are pro-gay, like PCUSA, Episcopal, etc.? Uh, let me see. Okay, so uh, my friend says she attends a third-way church. What, is the, what does that actually mean? Um, that actually is a wonderful question. I think this is a relatively new term. And, Ross, if you know about this, please chime in because I'm, I'm certainly no expert on, on this term of third-way. But um, as I was down there, I was doing just a little bit of research to see if I could find a, a true definition. Um, certainly is a newer term because churches are now wrestling with this and the, the idea of third-way means that so far we've had these two polar opposites. You know, it's basically like churches are, I'm just going to use some polarizing words to make sense, anti-gay or pro-gay, okay? And then what they're suggesting is there's a third way, a middle ground, a moderate ground. And um, from what I understand is that most third-way churches, uh, I don't want to speak for really any of them, but I'm going to try my best, uh, say that um, homosexuality is not really a sin, uh, but at the same time, a third-way church would not, let's say, officiate a gay marriage, okay? So that's that's kind of a, a working definition of third-way. Do you know? I think that's a good definition. Okay. And so then to answer the question, is Quest a third-way church? Um, I, we have not, as Quest leadership, ever discussed this. Are we a third-way church? What do we think about this? We have certainly talked about homosexuality and where we uh, land on homosexuality based on what both Ross has said this morning and what we've talked about in uh, previous sermons. We are not a third-way church. Um, is that fair to say? Okay. I uh, just want to make sure. <laughs> At least we're on the same page. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. So we, we are not a, a third, we're not a third-way church. And um, I, think, I think we violate the definition of a third-way church in the very first uh, Part of that, which is saying that is homosexuality a sin. I think Ross answered that very well uh, in his message. So the second part of this question that I do want to bring up, though, is how do we interact with churches who are pro-gay, like PCUSA uh, PC and Episcopal? Um, and I would I would say this question um, is is a fantastic question, and I, I think 
we have answered it over and over again, but I want to continue to answer it because it's part of the fabric and the DNA of who we are as Quest and that we say we are far more interested in being in relationship with people than having differences with people. We will disagree. We do disagree, but we think that um, that it's it's better to have a conversation and let that conversation be ongoing rather than to say we are not going to have any kind of uh, relationship with you because we disagree on these things. I, I, um, uh, does it mean that we are going to uh, do... I, I actually, I don't want to step into that because... Um, we would we would certainly engage in conversation, relationship, et cetera, with those churches that we disagree with on um, some of these issues. We yeah, already so, do, in fact, is a better way to say it. Yeah, and, and that's our belief in, in general across the board where we disagree. I don't want to protest. I don't want to create alienation. I want to build friendship. Yeah. I think that's what Jesus did. I mean, look at Jesus, the way he interacted with people when he came. The only people he really confronted were the religious snobs who wouldn't allow a relationship to be built. I mean... That's the main person he confronted, right? And, and so there's one question that came in. Why do we so often start with sin? I would, say, I would say we don't start with sin in our conversations with people. We start with, do you want to follow Christ? Do you want him to define your identity and try to make that attractive? And we build a relationship. And I'll, I'll just be honest. For, for those of you who are here, because I know many of you here have talked to me about it or, or I see the Facebook posts, you know, many of you are, are, are against our position on this, right? Have we ever denied you care or involvement here? It's not going to change. It's not going to change. And, and the, really the question comes down to, I mean, we, we talk about change in people. So, so let's, say, let's say maybe today, let's just imagine that I think this is fantasy, but let's say today maybe, maybe this changed somebody's mind. Maybe they went from believing it's okay to believing it's not God's best. That whole change in people's lives is a whole lot more complicated than that. And if we don't, if we don't expect people to be able to, if, whether it's this or whether it's any other thing that's going on, if, how patient are we going to be with people over years to walk with them in loving relationship, even while they are not convinced yet about the authority of the Bible? So if, if somebody's not convinced about the authority of the Bible, they're not going to be convinced about this. So what can we do to walk with them? But, they, but a lot of people who aren't convinced in the Bible really love Jesus. And really want to follow him. So how can we create a place where they can be, all of us can be in process? That in my sins that are annoying, that don't go away for 20 years, you'll, you'll walk with me in that until, until God brings change. Or we'll walk with other people in a supportive, caring, friendly, kind way. And that's, that's the challenge of following Jesus in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in the mess of grace. It's really easy to become religious and just set boundaries and say, don't do this, which is actually one of the other questions about how do you teach your children on this? Well, frankly, your children are going to be exposed to this. I mean, we were, we, we were going with our kids when they were in kindergarten to parties with, with friends who were being raised by two moms or two dads. And, you know, it's just, I mean, you've you got to talk about it. And it doesn't, it's not something, frankly, where, you know, I know some very uh, religious, I don't know how to say this, I'm going to offend somebody. I think our kids should be in relationship with people who are struggling with this. I think our kids should have friends who are gay. And 
we should be the ones reaching out in kindness to them and caring for them. And we should be the ones when they get persecuted or teased wrongly by other people, we're, we're the ones putting our arm around them and caring for them. To me, that's going to be like Jesus. We should be the one advocating that their rights are not violated and loving on them and building a relationship that allows us to have an honest dialogue. My kids have friends, several friends who are gay, and they talk about this openly because there's so much love between them and care between them that they know they don't agree, but they can still talk about the issue. we got to lead with that kind of care before we start going on the sin thing. And if you go with the sin thing, you better talk about your own sin first. Really. I mean, because we are all in this together. We're all in this together. My identity has been as damaged in different areas from God's good created best as theirs. And unless I recognize that, I can't have compassion. Unless we recognize that, we can't have compassion. I do want to add to that. This is, I, I was really excited to, to try and address this question when I saw it come in until Ross stepped on my toes and went after it. Um, which, and interestingly enough, I was ready to answer the question about children after that, and then he jumped all over that one too. So, uh, thanks. Well, you get the last question. Well, I'm just going to answer this, then you get another one. So get on there. Start figuring out which other one you're going to steal from me. Um, I'm just kidding. No, I, I did, I, one of my favorite portions in, in scripture is this, this, this dialogue that Paul has, um, so we're back to Acts 17. Um, Paul's in Athens. He's walking through the you know town center right there, and he sees all of these different idols and all this wonderful stuff. And he starts this conversation with these people, and uh, and eventually he he ends up in this place that's known as the Areopagus. And someone can correct how that's actually pronounced later. That's fine. But it's a place where people share their thoughts. They dialogue about beliefs and and ideas. And and he sits in there and he has this conversation and. And he ultimately, he's just sharing uh, the truth of the gospel with these people. And, and it's fascinating to me because what Paul is doing, he isn't addressing sin directly. He's addressing Jesus directly with them. And, and uh, it's, it's such a fantastic thing because it's done through conversation. Now, one of the reasons that I love this section of Scripture is because if we fast forward um, to Paul in, in Acts 19, he's in Ephesus, and he's doing a very similar type of thing where he's he's kind of interacting with people and... Um, He's sharing Christ, and 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 it's it's noticeable that he's not tearing down the other gods and goddesses. Like uh, Paul is Paul is very intentional about that. Not because in Ephesus, some of you may know that the the main goddess there was Artemis, and this is this fertility cult, and it was crazy fertility cult. And um, and Paul never once said Artemis is you know whatever whatever whatever. All he did was talk about how wonderful Jesus was and the truth of who Jesus was. So much so that he actually had people who were um, like town leaders who were defending Paul's life in front of a riot that broke out, um, basically calling for his life. And, and you can tell that the relationships that he had with the people that he was sharing faith with were so strong, so winsome, and so meaningful that people were willing to defend him because he said, I want to engage in relationship and conversation rather than tear people down and prove them right or wrong make myself right. And and so I think he is a great model for us when we're thinking about how do we engage these kinds of conversations. We do it in relationship. 
We, we, we talk to people where they are. We open up about our own um, problems, our own issues, our own questions, our own etc. And, and we have a dialogue about who Christ is first, not who we are or what we think is best. Is that fair? So anyway, it's, I'm, I was glad to talk about that. Awesome. Jesus asks all the same questions. He doesn't isolate anyone. His questions to us about lordship in our lives are all these questions. Will you let me define you? Every part of you. Will you follow me and let me sort out the drives in you that are misdirected? I don't care if they're sexual or there's something else. Will you let me sort out the drives in you that are misdirected by a broken, sinful world? Will you love me and trust me even if those drives don't change and you struggle with them your whole life until he comes back for you, whether it's death or heaven? Will you accept my loving forgiveness and will for you even in the struggle? And will you then stop condemning yourself, condemning others? Jesus asks all of us the same questions, those questions about lordship. He doesn't isolate homosexuals. He doesn't isolate adulterers. He doesn't isolate thieves. He doesn't isolate those who are worriers. He asks us all the same questions. We're in this together. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be a people who would be in this with you together. And Lord, we recognize that there are so many areas that we're blind to, that each one of us is blind to in our own lives, of how we have a warped view of the world that's been warped by sin, by biology, by genetics, by whatever it's been changed. Lord, because of sin in our world, because of the fallen state, the broken state, we don't see things right. Lord, I'm just so grateful that even when we don't agree, when we don't see things right, you still come to us with kindness and gentleness, wooing us to better and better each day that you're patient with us. Because, Lord, there's been things in, in my life, I'm sure everybody can hear, can, can, can relate, there's been things where I've been convinced for a long time that it was wrong, but I still couldn't get myself to make that decision to change. And I just couldn't overcome it. And you were so patient and kind to walk with me and walk with all of us through times like that. Lord, I pray that you would make us that kind of a people, that we would love that deeply, just like you. And, Lord, that we would see your salvation. We would see your goodness in this life and in the one to come. In Jesus' name. As we continue to worship, we're going to receive communion. And I can't think of a better way to do it today because many of you can probably look at times in your life like I can and years ago where you propped up stereotypes and meanness by what you did. And maybe you've never repented for that. This is a great time to do that. Jesus came as an example to us in his body and the bread we take of one who would be willing to come close to us and love us closely even when we weren't wanting it. Even when we were angry with him for his demands, he still came close to us. And that's what he wants us to be. And he offers all of us the same forgiveness and the same call. And that's what we celebrate in taking the juice. So come on, receive communion while we continue to worship. Thank you so much for listening to our sermon podcast. If you are interested in learning more about Quest, who we are and what we do, please visit gotoquest.org slash connect. If you are interested in supporting Quest financially, you can give quickly and easily by visiting gotoquest.org slash giving. 
This page will walk you through all the options to give online, via text message, or through the PushPay app. If you are loving Quest and the podcast, let us know by tagging Quest in your Facebook or Twitter post and use the hashtag GoToQuest. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to check back in next week for another great message.